HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Adema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi yubamen in zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. And we have had sous chefs in the last two episodes, a private chef from Japan and sustainability-minded American sous chefs in New York. And my guest today is another talented sous chef, David Yoshitomo Arabak, who is the chef owner of Yoshitomo in Omaha, Nebraska. And Japanese sushi has become a part of the American food culture. Now you can see great non-Japanese sushi chefs in the U.S. who prove that sushi does not belong only to Japan. These chefs inspire the tradition and make it evolve further. And David is a classic example. He is nominated for Best Chef Midwest by the James Beard Foundation in 2023. And this year, his restaurant Yoshitomo has been nominated for the 2024 Outstanding Restaurant Award by the Foundation as a semi-finalist. And the result will be announced on June 10th in Chicago. Also, the Washington Post named Yoshitomo one of America's best sushi restaurants in December 2023. So today we'll discuss how David got into the world of sushi, how he studied sushi making in Omaha, Nebraska, where beef is the king, his original sushi that merges the tradition and American-style umami, and his collaboration with Japanese chefs, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We truly appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start our conversation with David Yoshitomo Krabak. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so uh, excited to be on a show that I actually listen to. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 
Right. And congratulations on the James Beard nomination for the Outstanding Restaurant Award, which is a huge deal. Yeah, so, thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been kind of a crazy uh, couple of months. Yeah, or years, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Right. So we'll discuss all about your efforts and success and everything else. So um, to, to get to know you first, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, So my family was military, so I've kind of lived all over the world, uh, but I've spent most of my life here in Omaha, Nebraska, and so, you know, about 30 years. So, you know, I I guess now I have to claim, you know, that I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Growing up, you know, we were, you know, my dad is is, uh, from Iowa, and, uh, you know, we didn't have access to a lot of Japanese food, and so my my the food that I ate growing up was a, a lot of just regular, you know, kind of Midwestern family food, you know, uh, steak and corn, mashed potatoes. My mom would make some Japanese food, but, you know, it, 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 most of my eating has just been kind of standard Midwest food. Mm, right. So your mother is uh, Japanese and her last name is Yoshitomo. Is that? No, my, uh, my mother is from... Uh, uh, Okinawa, Kumejima. Uh, yeah, her last name was uh, Ota. Okay. Ha, huh, interesting. So I have to find out why you named your restaurant Yoshitomo later, but oh, that's very cool. So Kumejima. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. So you have a very culturally intense um, blood in your yeah, yeah. DNA. <laughs> yes. Awesome. Great. And uh, so, but, you know, growing up in the Midwest, how did you get into cooking and also in particular sushi? So, you know, it wasn't ever really my plan. Uh, you know, I was just a young man. I was working a couple of jobs. I was, I was in a band. I was going to school. I was living in a house with like 11 people, you know, just so poor. Uh, and someone living in my house, they, they said that the restaurant, the sushi restaurant they were working at was hiring a sushi chef. And uh, sushi is my favorite food. And, you know, I never get to eat it because I was so poor. So I figured working in a restaurant as a sushi chef, I could get to eat free food and, and get to eat sushi. So, uh, I applied, you know, it, being Japanese, I immediately got hired, right. Cause there's no <laughs> Japanese sushi chef. So it was like one of the few times, like, you know, it's being Japanese, like got me the job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, even then my, my plan wasn't really to, to work in restaurants. You know, I was going to go to school and, and, and do something with my life. Uh, no one, you know, very few people who work in restaurants, like choose that job. It kind of, you know, the restaurant life chooses you. It's kind of like pirates. Right. Mm. Um, so I, you know, at a, at a certain point I had just been making sushi, you know, for, for a while and, um, you know, it, it just kind of stuck. Mm, right. So that sounds like what's called destiny, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, and tell us about uh, your sushi training. Uh, so who was your sushi sensei and uh, what style of sushi did you study? So uh, I have no sensei, you know, in the beginning, there were people who could make the sushi menu um, and they taught me the basics. Uh, but you know, around here, especially at the time, you know, the basics, you know, it's, it's really just, this is how you make nigiri. 
this is how you make California roll. And then now you work at the restaurant, you know, so I don't really have a, a sensei who, who really had any real training and no one around me had, had any training uh, uh, either, mm-hmm. you know? So when I finally decided to, you know, pursue this uh, as a professional, it was, you know, it was after a, 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 a my first trip to Japan mm. and uh, I, you know, this was 2009, 2010. I, I Googled best sushi in Japan and the restaurant that came up was, um, uh, I showed it to my concierge at my hotel and they made me a reservation for the next day. And the, the restaurant was Sukiyabashi Jiro. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know really anything about it. I just wanted to go eat the best sushi. Uh, and that meal really changed my life. I didn't know that there were professionals and this level of food. And so, you know, when I left that meal, uh, I really, really wanted to be a sushi chef, like a real one. And, but I came home and there's no one to, to train you even at the time, you know, 2009, there's maybe less than 10 omakase counter, uh, in the United States. Mm. So from then on, I have to train myself. So I'm like Ronin, I guess. I don't know. Like just no master. Right. Uh, yeah. So because of that, you know, I've, I study everybody. Uh, I, I eat a lot of sushi. I eat with anybody uh, I can. And I try to learn from everybody that I eat with. Mm. Well, that's interesting, right? Because, uh, you know, listeners may be familiar with the movie, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which happened to be the restaurant you went to. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure I was before the movie came out, right? Because you were able to get a table. <laughs> yes. I was actually the only guest at the restaurant that day. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So again, that's a destiny. You are supposed to be, uh, that was the most authentic, um, yeah. Restaurant. I, uh, yeah, I had been making sushi for maybe three years at the time. And so, you know, they asked me what my job was. And I told them in, you know, Jap- my, my terrible Japanese, I was a sushi chef. And, uh, you know, the, the father and the son, you know, Jiro and, and you know, uh, Yoshikazu just looked at each other for a second. And then they, they laughed at me for <laughs> like a really long time, you know, like, like an embarrassingly long time they laughed at me. <laughs> mm. Well, that's the thing, right? So um, for Japanese chefs, uh, chef, uh, I mean, the sushi has to be trained. Um, maybe for like the way the dreams, uh, Jiro Dome Sushi describes. It takes years and years and something that you really learn from one teacher. And But the way you have learned sushi and you're going to keep learning and, and became one of the best sushi chefs in America, according to uh, James Beard and other um, all those media or, you know, res- respectable resources. Um, I think it really indicates something of the future of sushi, right? Because you have to keep evolving. And uh, well, Jiro may not laugh at you anymore because um, you have to be open-minded. There's so many different kinds of inspirations all over the world. And uh, from Edo period up to now, tradition evolved and it's very solidified. So there's nothing to lose for the Japanese tradition, but the market is global. We discover like Yosushi, I was looking at your whole menu on the Instagram. I just want to eat it too. So <laughs> <laughs> it's the different idea of what's delicious and uh, 
what people enjoy. And that all those new mindset, I think Japanese sushi chefs are inspired by you. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think sushi is, is, is always, you know, it's steeped in tradition for sure. Right. Uh, but it has always been about, you know, small evolutions, even Edomai sushi. Yes. There's, you know, the techniques and the way you're supposed to do it and, uh, the particular items that you use, but most of the fish that's used in Edomai sushi, you cannot get, you know, anymore out of Tokyo. So even there has to, there, there, there's been forced evolution, you know, in, in even the craft, uh, you know, in, in, and, and so as it's gone around the world, you know, it, it's starting to do what it needs to do and, and adapt to its location. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so that's the whole essence of uh, Edomae Sushi. Edomae means the Tokyo Bay called sushi. <laughs> the, the ingredients happen to be um, overcoming from Tokyo Bay. But now um, I think the interpretation happened to uh, be born near, by the Tokyo Bay, but it yeah. could have been um, Setouji Sea or Chuchipan yeah. Seaside. So uh, that's the nature. You have this fish available, you make it into portable, um, easy to uh, enjoy, and not too expensive. That was the essence back then in Edo period when the sushi was born. It's like a fast food uh, sold out of the cart. So uh, that's the essence of sushi. You, it has to be uh, locally, uh, reasonably available. And that's the essence. It can be, I don't know, Atlantic Ocean or Mediterranean Sea. It's just all the new sushi is not new. It's the local sustainable and uh, reasonable. So that's what you're doing, I think, in Omaha. Yes, that's 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 what I'm trying to do. It's it's you know it's difficult to adapt some you know everything local. You know our local terroir. You know river fish don't really work well for sushi. You know, <laughs> so it's trying to find ways to you know. It, use our, our local tastes to kind of uh, give us a path on, on how we should make our food here. Right. For example, you use uh, amazing beef on your sushi, which totally makes sense. And Wagyu sushi also, it's available in Japan too. So why not? Right? You don't have to stick with one type of ingredients. That's why avocado sushi is so delicious as well. Yeah. You know, uh, a cow is just a tuna that lives on the land, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, rich in iron and all those minerals. That is very true. Very nutritious too. So, and you proved your talent at the Blue Restaurant Group in Omaha, uh, which has multiple locations in now 12 states. And you worked there for over 12 years. And uh, what did you learn from the experience at uh, the Blue Restaurant Group? So, you know, working for the Blue uh, Restaurant Group, was was maybe you know you said destiny and it, it, it's probably perfect um, right you know I started with the company when they they just had one location and uh, I became the chef of their second location but then became maybe not official title but the de facto corporate sushi chef uh, over the next ten years and so I helped build the company develop the menus design kitchens, manage staff, manage staff in, in multiple states, you know, implement, you know, cleaning programs, corporate programs, talk to health departments, 
Uh, but also most importantly, you know, I'm, I'm in the room with the ownership, you know, every month as they're talking about financials and how to grow the company, what's successful and, and seeing kind of how a company grows from one small location to now, gosh, they have 15, 16, nine, so many locations. Company is huge. Uh, you know, so, you know, they made their money on sushi, but the menu didn't change very often. Um, just small changes here and there. And it was my job to sort of find new ingredients, source better product, uh, make the sushi experience at Blue better. But I think the thing that I learned most and maybe most importantly was how to run a business, right? You can, you know, owning a restaurant is, is, is you know, 90% running the business, 10% making the food. Uh, without that, the whole thing kind of falls apart. And so, you know, learning how to make, you know, learning how to make the whole business work was, was, a, was maybe the number one thing that I took from the company. Mm, right. Well, that's really crucial to be successful as a business owner. We, we're going to discuss, you have uh, three restaurants, which is very impressive. Um, yeah. So, well, <laughs> you got lucky to have your a friend living together in the 11 people household and you're going to introduce to that restaurant. So yeah, yeah, that's amazing. All right. So we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into David's original style of sushi at the Yoshitomo. Uh, so please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Koin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Koin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aiko Katayama, and my guest today is David Yoshitomo Arbak, who is the chef owner of Yoshitomo, Ota, and Koji in Omaha, Nebraska. 
His outstanding sushi has been widely recognized by the James Beard Foundation and the powerful media outlets and so forth. So, um, so you could have stayed at the Blue Restaurant Group comfortably as a corporate chef, but you decided to open your own restaurant, uh, Yoshitomo, in 2017. So what is the concept of Yoshitomo and why did you name it Yoshitomo? Uh, so Yoshitomo is my middle name. So, mm. uh, you know, looking for something that gives uh, a Japanese restaurant authenticity, you know, Yoshitomo, well, you know, that's pretty authentic. And at the time, you know, Morimoto's, you know, uh, very popular, like it's just Nobu, all the best restaurants have the name of the chef, right? And Yoshitomo sounds like a name of Shogun. So yeah. that's really cool. <laughs> Super cool. You know, if it was called, you know, David Sushi or Utterback Sushi, you know, I, I just, I don't think it would be as uh, taken seriously, you know, so Yoshitomo gives me a, a little bit of credibility there. Uh, mm. But when I, when I decided to open up the restaurant, I had been working uh, for the Blue Company for a long time. And, you know, the company makes... Uh, they're, they're, they're just a big corporate restaurant, right? Um, they make, they make a lot of sushi for a lot of people, uh, very successful, but you know, I had gone to Japan. I wanted to be an, you know, a really great omakase chef. And that's just not the place where I could pursue that. Um, you know, the company does things a certain way and I, and I wanted to be more of a, a craftsman. I wanted to be like my heroes. And so at a certain point, you have to decide whether you're going to help other people chase their dreams or you're going to chase your dream. You know, either it's fine. You just kind of have to commit. You can't do both. So it was time for me to split. Uh, Yoshitomo original concept was really about I needed a job. I didn't want to work for anyone else. I had some ideas of what I wanted to do, but the Yoshitomo that I opened with and the Yoshitomo of today are completely different restaurants. Um, I thought that I would just open, you know, kind of the Midwestern sushi bar that I came from, just maybe with some little bit better food. Uh, and I wouldn't have to be anyone's boss, you know. So when we opened, we had sake bombs and California rolls and soy sauce on the table. We gave out ginger and wasabi. We, you know, we did all the stuff that sushi restaurants do around here. Uh, but Pretty quickly, we learned that um, the guests were starting to order more of the items that, that were more high-end, you know, plated dishes, sashimi dishes. Uh, they were ordering more nigiri than I had, ever, I had ever made at any of my other jobs. Um, and so it became pretty easy to see that the clientele and the guests wanted more. They wanted something nicer. Than, than they had been um, eating at. And so the concept changed pretty quickly to, to go, okay, what are all the things that I wish that I could do at a restaurant, but I was always too afraid to do? Let's just do it. And every time we, we did it, it was really scary. It's like, okay, we're going to take the California roll off the menu. That's like the engine. That's, what, that's the cheeseburger. It makes the whole thing work, right? Uh, we're going to take soy sauce off the table. We're going to not give the guests any wasabi. We're not going to have, you know, cheap sake. We're not going to have all the stuff that I, I really wished that I could do. I, I just decided to do it pretty much, you know, within the first year. And that's, we've just kind of taken that further and further as, as, as time has gone on. 
So the, uh, you know, the concept of Yoshitomo now would be, it's kind of a sushi restaurant. I wouldn't even really call it a Japanese restaurant. You know, it's just, it's just become a restaurant where I cook the things and make, make food that I really, really enjoy myself. And it happens that a lot of that food is, you know, Japanese based. Uh, but I try not to put too hard of a label on things. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not a very good creative chef. So it's really hard for me to, to just, you know, if, if I have too many options, I get a little bit overwhelmed. So the concept of Yoshitomo is now, you know, we're, we're a restaurant that specializes in, in, in sushi and, and it's, it's a little more fine dining, not quite fine dining, but maybe kind of casual fine dining. Right. Mm. Right. Well, that's, isn't it that trend, even in New York or any big cities, uh, people wants to have comfortable feeling and eating the finest food available. So yeah, I think that is the trend of all those, uh, regardless of <laughs> the price. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking at this uh, amazing uh, Instagram photos and your menu. It's uh, definitely, it looks very authentic. Some, some like sushis look like very authentic, but there's some twists in it. So that's very exciting. So let's talk about um, some of the examples that you really want to introduce to the listeners who have never been to your place. Yeah. So, you know, for us, um, you know, we have, we have your regular sort of traditional sushi, right? Uh, we have, you know, all, you know, tuna, salmon, all of those, those items, you know, but there's gotta be room for new, new invention. There's gotta be room for evolution. So it's important for us to have all of the, the things that, that define a sushi restaurant, but I think it's also important to see if we, there's more to it. Right. And so we've got a whole menu of what we call bites, but essentially those bites are just a, a reinterpretation of, uh, of nigiri, you know, maybe more of a composed nigiri, more ingredients. Uh, I, I guess if you, you know, it would be closer to a, a Kyushu or a Southern style, actually, uh, nigiri, you know. So, of course, you know, we're really kind of famous for our aburi wagyu which is uh, kind of a, it's a beef sushi, but we, we cure it for three days in koji and then it gets torched and served with a, a little bit of uh, uni butter and, and just some nikiri. And it's, you know, essentially it's just, you know, it's the best steak bite in town. It just happens to be sort of in a, in a sushi form. Um, very popular. That, that one, is, we sell more, almost as much beef as we do tuna every week. Right. Well, <laughs> I wish I've never been to your place, just to be clear. But <laughs> I am looking at this whole amazing pictures. And for example, this Instagram picture, that looks very authentic, but this is about um, shrimp kobujime and mm. uh, with uh, fat exo, shrimp oil. And it's just, you can tell, this is a umami essence or concentrated flavor of fish umami. And uh, who doesn't think of that, right? I wish it existed yesterday and yeah. uh, I never tried it. So that kind of thing, but it looks very authentic. And uh, your sushi rice is very unique, right? Like Dagazu sushi, uh, sushi rice? Or? So, you know, each restaurant, the recipe for the rice is a little bit different. Um, and that, 
you know, for Yoshitomo, you know, we, we, we used kind of a, you know, a standard sushi rice, you know, in the Ota counter, we're using Akazu, uh, Yoshitomo, Yoshitomo restaurant uses a little bit of Akasu in, in, in our, in our vinegar. Um, you know, but I've also learned, you know, from my previous experience, uh, you know, the, the sweeter sushi rice is the more guests seem to really like the sushi. Uh, and so, you know, the, the rice, you know, Yoshitomo is sweeter than the rice then that's served at the Omakase counter Ota. Uh, and so they're all a little bit different. Mm. Interesting. And you, you also have the regular white looking uh, sushi rice at Yoshitomo too, right? So, yeah, I, I really think that you consider the combination very seriously. And um, yeah, and it's stunning. The, it's uh, how it looks, it's really more exciting than uh, the whole traditional sushi, which is simple and beautiful, but there's something exciting. And I feel like asking you questions, how did you come up with this? So that's, the presentation is really important and you're very successful about that too, to trigger interesting sushi. Yeah, you know, so, so you know, the, the bites are, are, are kind of, you know, can we use other items? Can we use other items to make sushi? Um, you know, and what, what is the definition of sushi? You know, when people ask, you know, I like to tell them as long as there's sushi rice involved, everything is sushi, right? You can, it, I, I'm sure there's just so many people who just heard that, you know, listening to the show and just going, no way, absolutely not. But if you go all through Japan, the construction of sushi just changes, right? Uh, sometimes it's in a bowl, sometimes it's in a hako, you know, sometimes it's a bozushi. The construction can change as long as the, the sushi rice is the most important. So, Always looking for how can we make new sushis, right? So we have like a a, a, a gunkan that we we put f- uh, foie gras and we top it with a little bit of nitsume and like a cherry boshi, right? It's almost like a dessert, but you know it's sushi. It doesn't look like any sushi you know that most people make, but that sushi rice is there. It's in a gunkan. You know, a sushi chef made it. It's, you know, to me, that's sushi. Uh, but we have other items like, uh, you know, one of our, our really famous uh, items that we're known for is called hama toast. And we just take a negi hamachi and we put it on top of a sourdough toast that we make here in house. And the toast is soaked in a, like a tamari brown butter. And, you know, there's no sushi rice in that one, right? So not sushi. But to me, that item is kind of like sushi. You know, you replace the rice, you need something that's starch, that's sour, sourdough. You know, you replace that sushi rice with another item that kind of has, you know, some characteristics of sushi, you know, and so that, that bite, you know, it's, we use that toast a lot to introduce items to guests that maybe they wouldn't normally, you know, order like uni or something like that. It's, it's a great uh, introduction to, you know, if I have a guest that says, I don't like uni. I go, hold on. And I put it on the toast with the brown butter. And then all of a sudden now they're a fan of uni, right? So we can use some of these items as sort of a gateway to, to get guests out of their comfort zone and trying some new things. Mm. Right. But the combination totally makes sense. Like, you know, uh, when I grew up in Japan, there's a batagohan means like the hot rice, white mm. rice and uh, with butter and soy <laughs> mixed in. 
that's like your tamari brown butter combination. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, right, this kind of classic uh, umami combination. And uh, the sourdough, I think, adds magical uh, live uh, taste of umami. So, yeah, this is exciting because uh, what you're serving, the layering flavors of different unexpected ingredients, that makes sense, uh, which I think is why uh, you've been successful. So it's not just a uh, like whimsical combination. You really, I can tell, you really thought, the combinations very deeply uh, with reference to tradition and also your own uh, sense of umami. Mm. Right. Okay, so uh, so let's talk about your other two restaurants, Ota and Koji, because you mentioned um, Ota already. So what are the concepts of uh, Ota and Koji? So Ota would be, you know, I, I've been doing omakase for about 10, 11 years now. Um, in the beginning, I was just um, borrowing, stealing counter space from my friends' restaurants when they were closed, and I would host these omakase dinners. And you know, at the time, there was, you know, Chicago didn't have anything. The only counters was New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And so for, I would say, five years, I was the only person practicing, uh, you know, omakase sushi you know, in between, you know, for the whole middle of America, there was no one, no one else doing it. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the early days, it was me borrowing and traveling every, every, every week, every month to go do that. And eventually, uh, when we opened up Yoshitomo, we had space for a, a uh, our own counter. And so the Ota counters is kind of, you know, that's my counter. That's where I work. That's, you know, it's a, you know, traditional format, omakase meal. Um, it's all the high-end ingredients. You know, I'm, I'm sourcing everything from, from uh, Kyushu, Fukuoka, Toyosu. You know, I'm using the same ingredients and, and purveyors and contacts uh, that, you know, the Michelin counters are using. And then having stuff that is sent from friends uh, who are working in Japan, you know, in Tokyo, and so it's really my attempt to do the sushi that I've always wanted to do. Um, and so, and then we have Koji. Koji is kind of a, more of a, it looks more like the restaurant that I came from, the blue restaurant, very um, sort of accessible Midwest sushi. But, but that restaurant, we specialize in yakitori. So, you know, we've spent the last couple of years trying to teach ourselves yakitori and, and do it the right way, you know, grilled over real binchotan, getting whole, whole chickens from the farm, breaking them all down, you know, and really trying to pursue true yakitori, which is also very rare outside of New York, LA and San Francisco. Uh, but Koji is a closer cousin to that Midwestern sushi bar that, that most guests around here are used to. A um, little more accessible, uh, you know, less uh, high refinement, and 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 it's you know closer to a kind of a an izakaya, I would say. Mm, right. So Koji can be the entrance to uh, Yoshitomo. And yeah. Ota. <laughs> we have <laughs> levels, right? Koji, Yoshitomo, and then Ota. Mm. Well, I'm sure you're having fun and discovering how to cook yakitori. That's a whole nother. Deep world too. Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> right. 
Wow, that's amazing. So, um, okay, and uh, well, so you mentioned you collaborate. Uh, you have friends, sushi chefs from Japan and based in Japan, and you do collaboration uh, dinners or events. So, how? I mean, uh, sushi world traditionally they're not so connected as you know other chefs do not do collaborations in Japan traditionally, but you, you seem to be very active. You're working with other sushi chefs. So uh, what kind of dinners or events do you do? And also, how do you find all those um, guest chefs? So, um, you know, for me, because I don't have any a teacher, I don't have anyone who can show me things, you know, I have to be a student, right? I have to go to different dinners. I have to see what people are doing. Uh, and I travel everywhere. I try to go to every city that has an, you know, a, a counter worth visiting. And I try to go, um, cause there's always something to learn from everybody. And so in my travels, I will find other sushi chefs who I, I feel connected to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an o- sushi otaku. I, I just love the culture. I, I, I'm a big super fan of everybody. And when I meet somebody who is also very skilled, um, but doesn't quite have the same, um, maybe training that I do, I feel very connected to them and I, and I want to see how they got there and, and how they do it. And so, uh, you know, I, I will go to a dinner and I will just at the dinner, ask them, Hey, I'm a sushi chef. I, I want to do a dinner with you. Will you come to my restaurant or can I come to your restaurant? Um, you know, it's, it, and that's just kind of how I find them. They're, they're, they're counters where I'm, I'm in the middle of dinner and I'm, I love this dinner and I really want to like make sushi with you. Uh, and sushi chefs normally don't work together. Right. Uh, but I, I really think that that collaboration and, and the friendships are, are really important and, and they're important for me. And so when we do dinners, uh, oftentimes they're all different. Oftentimes I will have them come to my restaurant and make their sushi and I will make their sushi. So I'll use their rice, their techniques, and I try to learn, right? Because everybody's kind of got a different style. So, you know, when I had Otto Fan from Kyoten in Omaha, I, I, I said, you know, Otto, I want you to make your sushi. I'm also going to work the counter with you and I'm going to make your sushi too. So we can give my guests uh, experience with another sushi chef, but also I have experience learning someone else's philosophy. Um, and you, you learn some little tricks here and there. And then through those dinners, we share information with each other. And same with, you know, I, I've worked with uh, big, good friends. Actually, later this month, I'll be with Nick Bognar at Sado in St. Louis. Um, he's like another, you know, just great sushi chef. Uh, Chris Massad, you know, from Kampai, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've worked most with uh, Hiroyuki Sato from Hakoku in Ginza. Um, you know, I'll bring him over. I'll make his sushi like I'm an apprentice. You know, I'll go over to his restaurant. You know, he, he becomes my apprentice for a day, uh, which is really fun to have a uh, world famous sushi chef as your, you know, apprentice for the day. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's, it's part of, it's one of the ways how I, 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 I train, how I learn. 
but I think uh, uh, as much as you learn from those chefs, uh, probably the invitation to your restaurant, or uh, that could be the uh, one of the highest accolades they can get, right? Because who um, appreciate that much? I want to make sushi with you because you're amazing. And I think that's really um, inspiring and also, you know, motivating uh, for them to keep going. And uh, of course, uh, like, you know, Hiroyuki Sato of Hakkoku in Ginza, he's really highly recognized chef. And uh, I'm sure he learns a lot from you too. So uh, you are, without knowing, you're inspiring traditional Japanese restaurants um, all over the place in the world. Um, then it's very exciting. So um, how, you know, how do you fine tune your style of sushi though? Because you you want to keep evolving Um but you have so much to learn from. So do you have any anything, specific philosophy you want to do, you don't want to do or something like that? Yeah, you know, so for me, because I, I don't, you know, of course, again, I don't have a teacher. So, you know, one of the great things about being an apprentice is, you know, you come to a restaurant, they've got four or five, six generations of people who have made all the mistakes and learned the best way to do something. And when you learn as an apprentice, you learn day one, they show you, here's how you do the Saba. This is how you do it. Why? Because we, we, we perfected it. And so now you're going to do it this way. And when you get finished with your training, you can make beautiful sushi. But I don't know if you have a lot of diverse uh, experiences in that sushi, right? And so for me, I, having to teach myself, I have to pick up little tricks. I, I get recipes or technique from all over. And most of them come from me eating at other counters. So if I'm eating at, you know, 10 sushi in Kyushu, I'm eating, I'm eating, you know, a totally different style and I'm picking things up. Oh, I really like this flavor combination. I love how we made this. I, I like this philosophy. If I'm in Chicago at, you know, Kyoten, oh, I really like how sharp his shoddy is, or I really like the way he presented these items. And so now my, my style of sushi is really confused, right? It, it doesn't, it's preservation, you know, aging jukusei from Edomai sushi. It's combining ingredients to make a new one from, you know, Kyushu style. You know, there's American sensibility in there. It's really confused. It's it's almost like if a barbecue chef learned to make barbecue in six different cities and then tried to make, you know, his own style, it, it, everybody would say it's wrong because <laughs> everybody has an idea of what a specific regional style is. Right. Uh, but here I'm very, I'm very lucky because the experience level for, you know, high end sushi is limited. And so I, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And so, you know, I don't really have a, 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 a style, I guess, you know, my style is my style, but I don't have any rules or, or I don't put any limitations. You know, for me, when I create sushi, I, I first want it to be bold. I think, I think food should taste bold and, most sushi is not bold. And a lot of Japanese food isn't bold. Even when 
someone says, oh, this sushi chef's sushi is really bold, I'll eat it and go, no, that's maybe a little bit more bold than, than, than normal, but very rarely does, is sushi just so flavorful. It's, it's usually very um, reserved in, in, its, in its, its flavors. And to me, you know, as an American, especially in the Midwest, all the things that people crave and all the things that we love, they're, they're strong. Their flavors are really strong, right? When I crave something, I want pizza and hot dogs and chili cheese dog and, you know, cheeseburger. I'm never going, oh man, I, I just can't wait until I get that, you know, lightly flavored consomme broth again, you know, or I could just eat that, you know, piece of lettuce with a, with a, a spritz of lemon juice on it. You know, I crave really strong flavored foods and I think everyone else does too. And so a majority of my sushi ends up being very, very strong, super bold, super strong. Um, and, but then beyond that, I, I don't try to think about what my guests would like or what somebody else would like um, because they're not there for me to fine tune that item. If I, if I, if I go, okay, what would a Kiko like? All right. Um, I'm going to try to make a dish for her. Well, you're not here to eat that dish 15 times until I get it right. And so I can't, I can't make it perfect. And so I, I only cook from my palate and my experience at this point, eating at all these counters and eating so much sushi, I, I feel like I have a pretty good palate. Um, and so I know that if I really, really like it, then it's really, really good. And if, and if you come to my restaurant and you like my food, then you like my palate. But if I, if I cook any other food than, than something that I like to eat, then you may come to the restaurant and not like it. So guests, guests that don't like our restaurant and don't like our food, that's cool because, I, you know, like they can go to another restaurant where they're going to get the food that they like. But here, I know that if I really, if, 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 if my eyes roll in the back of my head after I make a piece of uh, a sushi, I know everybody who comes to my restaurant is going to like it because they like my palate. And so that's really, you know, really what I try to do is just, I cook for me. And, um, when everybody in the restaurant agrees that it has to go on the menu, then it's ready and it's good. And, mm. and that's just, that's it. That's, that's, that's how we try to do it. Right. Well, that's, you really made a, made a couple of interesting points because I think, you know, thinking of, do I go to the restaurant that the chef makes something for me, imagining I would like this and never works. And, uh, I always admire a restaurant where I I get the food that I didn't know I would like so much. So it's the surprise of new discoveries that I liked it. And also, yes. Um, yes. right? So I, I really think that you are almost obsessed with creating something you like and you, you feel like sharing that with your guests. And um, it's, it's like a, when you go to go see a, a, a painting or a painter, you don't go to the museum and go, I want to see, I want to see Michelangelo paint, you know, like, like someone else. I, he, I, I want to see his, his work. Right. <laughs> 
Like, I don't want to see Michelangelo do comic book art, or I don't want to see Michelangelo <laughs> paint, you know, like a, you know, something else. I want to see his original works. Mm. Hey, um, yeah, and I think also, uh, I remember now that uh, when I read Zeppi of Noma, I, I read his quote. Uh, he said, the worst thing in life is to do the same thing as yesterday. Mm. And I, I like that idea. His, his cooking has been evolving very quickly, very deeply. And um, I think, you know, you cook because you believe in something delicious to be served, to be discovered. And I think you have that mindset, <laughs> the same mindset as Rene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I get, I get bored very quickly. You know, maybe it's my uh, ADD or something, but you know, I, I always have to it, always moving on to the next thing. Mm. Right. So um, you mentioned earlier that your customer's palate uh you know, when you opened uh, Yoshitomo, you didn't expect that people look for something more refined, um, elaborate dishes, but obviously um, people's about to changing, developing very quickly, uh, maybe thanks to the internet and all those traveling um, becomes possible. So how do you see your guests' demographics and preferences um, changed over time since you started cooking, uh, making sushi in uh, Omaha area? Because I think we... We tend to think about LA or New York or those uh, big cities. That's what American people are eating sushi. But I think it's important that there are different preferences. Like you said, big taste. That's the Midwest how people think tend to think prefer. So how do you see the change and how do you describe what people are looking for in sushi? Yeah. So you know, over time, you know, I, I started making sushi in two thousand and four, two thousand five, something like that. Uh, and, you know, and back then, essentially all sushi restaurants were, were pretty much the same. Um, you know, every city, every restaurant, they were making kind of the same sushi, nigiri, you know, simple rolls, you know, they all had the, you know, uh, bento box with the, you know, with the chicken and, 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 and the California roll, it, it, all the restaurants were the same. And, and when I started, uh, uh, I was making a lot of that sushi, and over time, you know, the sushi, the sushi itself has gotten a lot more creative for sure. Um, especially in the Midwest, you know, it's, it's all about what kind of crazy sushi rolls can you come up with? Uh, you know, how weird can you make it? Uh, and those, those, those tastes are getting stronger, but also the people eating sushi now, you know, before now we have generations of people who grew up on it and, you know, my generation, you know, I grew up eating sushi just a couple of times a year. It was an expensive meal for my family. There weren't, there was only one restaurant in town where you could do it. Um, and I think that's a, a lot of, you know, anyone who's 40 and over, that's their experience too. You didn't eat a lot of sushi growing up. Uh, but now we have so, sushi is so, everywhere, right? And now you have generations of people who, who have now been growing up and eating it weekly, monthly, all the time. Uh, it's not just a special meal anymore. Um, and you can go anywhere and you, there's, there's all sorts of different kinds of um, experiences in, in sushi. And so the guests themselves are getting a lot more savvy. They're getting a little more educated. Um, they're wanting more. They, 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 
they're, they're, they're spending more um, on dinner. Dinner has now become kind of more of a entertainment as along with dinner. And it's, we, we, we find ourselves in, in our restaurants almost trying to think about it as a show, you know, whereas before it was a restaurant and now it's, you know, how are they going to experience the food? What does the staff look like? You know, how, how are they acting? You know, um, we, and I think a lot of restaurants are that way. Now you're, you're thinking about the restaurant holistically as more than, more than just a, a place to eat food, but a, an experience for a couple of hours. And I think that's really what, you know, what's changing for sushi and especially in, in the guest experience. Mm, right. That's interesting, right? Um, so people used to think sushi is only available in this city, that city, but I think it's becoming a universal language, like you said. Um, it's available everywhere and there's just a healthful image of it and people really familiar with eating raw fish, which was almost laughable um, in, I heard, in 1950s and 60s. So, yeah, it's amazing how um, sushi became very well accepted and also um, kind of developing it on its own in this country. That yeah. really is exciting. Yeah, you know, growing up, you know, every now and then my mom, you know, she would make a, a big futomaki sushi roll. And she'd put it in my lunchbox, you know, and I would be so excited. I'd go to school, lunchtime, <laughs> I, I would eat the sushi roll and everybody in the, in the school is, ew, what is that? That's gross. You know, and I became kind of embarrassed about it. Now I'm like the most popular guy in the city, you know, because I make <laughs> sushi, right? So that's how far we've come. Mm, right. And very fast. So, yeah. So, but still though, you are in the Midwest. It's not, you are not facing the ocean. And uh, so what's the biggest challenge of making sushi in Benson, Nebraska, uh, where seaports are far away and sushi culture is still relatively nascent uh, within this country. So the biggest challenges or. Yeah. Um, you know, for, so for guests, you know, we have to recognize that, that we are the ones that have to in- introduce sushi culture. You know, we can't just give you food and walk away and not tell you why it's important or even how to eat it. And I think that's where a lot of sushi restaurants get wrong. They just make sushi and, you know, if you're too stupid to do it right, you know, that's your problem. But for us, we need to be good ambassadors of, of, the, of the cuisine. And so we need to help train and, and help people um, appreciate it better. You know, so first we have to be good ambassadors. We have to teach the sushi culture um, here. Um, where, where the experience level is, isn't what it is in Los Angeles or, or New York. Um, and then sourcing fish, you know, I, I have a, I've been in the industry a long time and I've been in, in it in a corporate level. So I have, you know, pretty decent connections, you know, for, for getting fish, but, you know, getting Michelin level fish or getting, you know, really the, the best of the best, getting a good pick you know, uh, out of the markets is, is the challenge, right? You know, there's, and, and having those, those, those connections, you know, so even at, at, for the Ota counter and, and all Omakase counters, anyone can order fish from Japan. That's easy, right? You know, if you can get Japanese fish, kind of no problem. And 
for almost every restaurant, that is the sign of quality. They just say, this fish came from Japan. But there is a, a vast level of quality of fish in Japan. There is still bad fish in Japan. And so when a restaurant just tells you, oh, the sushi came or the, the fish came from Japan and that's it, that's not, that's interesting and that's better than a lot of the fish that, that is coming into the United States, but that's not really a sign that it's the best product. And so the, the challenge here for us is uh, relationships, Japanese culture, and, and especially purchasing fish, any kind of business is about relationships, not just money, you know, uh, developing a relationship over a long time with people you do business with, um, taking care of them, they take care of you. You don't really, I don't even really discuss prices a lot. I just know someone's not going to take advantage of me. I'm going to not cheat on them, you know, uh, and over time, improving your relationships, going to visit, saying hi, uh, you know, taking them out to dinner, you know, or lunch, you know, at the market. And, and that's how, how we're improving our, our picks of fish, right? If there's 10 tuna to be had, one of them is still the best tuna and using our relationships, uh, to help us get better fish has been the biggest challenge, especially with how far we are away. And, you know, being, being here in Nebraska, it's not, it's, you know, if you tell someone you're from New York or LA, they know what that is and it means something, but being from Nebraska, it's, it, it's kind of the middle of nowhere. So it doesn't, it doesn't really like play very well to just, you know, we're just ordering fish to Nebraska. They're just not going to send you the best stuff. Mm. Um, and so, right. You know, it's it's all about relationships, right? Yeah, that's I heard is the traditional way to um, get the best fish. Uh, it sometimes takes generations to establish that relationships at the fish market, even right. Skiji and Toyosu. So <laughs> that's amazing. And uh, I mean, the truth is that it's probably more important even to um, send the best quality fish in somewhere outside big cities to inspire new guests, sushi guests. So I think what you're doing is really meaningful to um, inspire diners, educate mm. diners' palate in the Midwest, which sounds like a big future of sushi market. So, um, well, but you still have um, three restaurants and it must be very hard to all those everything and maintaining the quality. So what keeps you going and what are your plans and dreams? What keeps me going? Well, I'm, I, I owe the bank a lot of money. So uh, I, have to, I have to keep going to work. <laughs> or I'm going to be homeless. Um, no, but really it's, you know, we, we open more restaurants because I want to um, create more and new experiences uh, for my city and, and, and give them um, – some of the things that bigger cities have and, and access to, to food and, and, and things like that, that, that they would have to travel for, uh, you know, and then, you know, restaurants, they don't even big restaurants, they don't make that much money. And so I, I actually, you know, I'm quite poor. Uh, I cannot retire on one restaurant. I have to open more or I will never, I will, I will be working like Jiro, Jiro-san and I will be 94 years old and having to make sushi. 
so I, I, there has to be some sort of uh, retirement, you know, and so we have to open more restaurants so I can make more money to someday retire. Uh, and, but really, the omakase counter ota, it, it really keeps me excited. It's, it's my dream to work a counter. It's my dream to make better sushi and improve my skills. And so every week, you know, I get, I get to still make sushi. I get to improve my skills and, and practice. But then, you know, outside of that, I, I, I get to visit the other restaurants, work with the chefs, work new menus. My life is very, it's really busy uh, and stressful, but it's very exciting. I, I always, I'm always working on something new. Mm. I cannot imagine you ever retire. <laughs> You're going to stay young and excited like a teenager. And that's very, very good, exciting. So so what are your plans and dreams? So, um, you know, I, 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 my, my dream is to work my Ota counter for as long as my body will let me uh, work my counter, um, improving my, my sourcing and, and just trying to, uh, you know, my dream is to make sushi as good, you know, as my heroes, you know. Uh, you know, Keiji Nakazawa and Takashi Saito, uh, you know, uh, uh, Endo-san at Ebisu Endo, you know, Koji Kimura. My, my, my dream is to someday people talk, you know, about a, a meal at my counter like they talked about a meal at, you know, at, at, at a legendary counter like those. Uh, but then I'd like to open some more restaurants, um, you know, bring more Japanese food and experiences um, to to my city and my region, you know, and that's it. You know, it's really to just make food. I, I, I really do enjoy cooking and, 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 and making sushi. Um, I want to keep doing that for as long as I can. Mm, right. Well, I've never been to uh, Nebraska, so you created a good reason for me to visit. Come, please come. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, so where can we find your updates online and on social media? Um, you know, so it's all the usual uh, places. You know, of course, we've got a, a Koji, Ota, and Yoshitomo Facebook. Um, those are easy to find. And then really everything else I do is is on Instagram, and we have accounts on those as well. I try to keep my my ex, um, experience with the internet as, as, as low as possible. And so really we just put all of our stuff on Instagram and then put it on Facebook, and then and that's it. Mm. Okay, so so the Instagram, uh, it's Yoshitomo underscore sushi and yep. uh, Koji is Izakaya Koji, uh, yep. K-O-J-I, and uh, for Ota, Omakase underscore Ota. Yep, and then, you know, I have, I have you know, my own personal where uh, it all starts on mine and then I disseminate the information on the rest. So it's my uh, uh, David Yoshitomo on Instagram. Cool, right? So that's David Yoshitomo, Y-O-S-H-I-T-O-M-O. Awesome. So uh, good luck. And uh, or James Beard, good luck. But also you're going to have a lot of uh, exciting things I can feel. So, yeah, wish you luck. And uh, maybe you can come back uh, sometime in the near future to keep us updates. Yes, I'd love that. Right. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you. Listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikotema.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer is William Warner, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. 
Planets is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.